Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex-positive space. So if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex-positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman, Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns. And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female-identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The content of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward, but we hope that listeners will sit with this discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversations to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body, and if needed, turn off the podcast and consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk, or reaching out to the Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673. Today on the podcast, we are welcoming Dr. Mary Beth Griffin. Dr. Griffin received her PhD in social and behavioral sciences from New York University, has previously completed an MPH at NYU, and holds an MA in international affairs from the New School. In addition, she is trained as a doula and a certified sexologist. Her research focuses on healthcare access among LGBTQ youth adults sexual health education, and the impact of media, music and film on identity and behavior. She is the co-creator of Dr. Period Hackers, a menstrual health research and education collective. Dr. Griffin is working on a book examining femininity in slasher films, which sounds fascinating. (laughs) She is an adjunct professor at NYU and an assistant professor at Rutgers University. She has worked at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene in areas of HIV-AIDS policy and program design, as well as helping to evaluate the quality of sexual health services and contraceptive coverage in New York City. In her free time, she enjoys baking, card making, and studying French. That is all true. (laughs) (laughs) Is there um, anything else that you, um, that we left out? Or if you want to share your pronouns, that would also be helpful. Yeah, my pronouns are she, her, and L, since I speak French. Mm -hmm. And Aya, if we're talking in Spanish. Yeah, excellent. That's great. I'm like listening to your bio. I'm like, how have you done all these things? You don't look old enough to have done all these things. And you just have such a wide range of experiences and so Aww. many different areas. Thank you. Well, I'm 42, so I'm, I think I'm older than I look. Also, I drink a lot of water and I hydrate, um, hydrate and moisturize regularly. So, And I stay out of the sun as much as I possibly can because I have the absence of melanin. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Feeling you. <laughs> well, we're so excited to have you here today. And this is going to be kind of a hybrid episode because we want to hear all about your research that is very applicable to our topic. But we also are curious if you 
want to share your personal experiences with us and think that that could be valuable to this conversation as well. Yeah. I'm Um, an oversharer, so I'll answer (laughs) any question. (laughs) Well, we we also are offering to be oversharers today or sharers. You know, we don't want this to just be you put on the spot. So (laughs) it's a, we'll try to create an equitable space. And so while we have some questions prepared, you Mm -hmm. can always flip questions around on us. Maybe not the research ones. We won't won't know (laughs) those answers. (laughs) But, you know, any personal questions, we're happy to answer. If there's something that we have left out of the conversation that you want to bring in, either related to your research or personal topics, we are happy to gauge those as well. Excellent. Can you share something that you like about being part of the NYU community? I have wanted to go to NYU since I was maybe eight, and I would watch The Cosby Show, and Theo Huxtable went to NYU, and the family lived in Brooklyn. They always made such a big deal that he would come home and, like, eat food there, and I was like, well, this looks like a family that resembles mine. I mean, not racially, but, like, okay, mother, father, working kids, bunch of kids. I'm one of four. And so I was like, well, if NYU is good enough for Theo Huxtable, it's good enough for me. So <laughs> that was that was really it. It's just it had always been my dream to move to New York City. I went to high school in Alabama, so that's where I always say that I'm from. And it just – I had always wanted to be in the city, and NYU seemed to be at the very, very heart of it. And I just – yeah, yeah. So it just like a, a – a thing I picked up from TV and I was like, okay, well, this is this is what I'm going to do because no other women in my family have ever been to college. I'm the first female college graduate and my dad has a bachelor's degree in chemistry and physics. So not somebody who could kind of help me navigate mm-hmm. what it was like to go into a more social science. So I took a lot of my cues from just other people around, which I think is something that happens with a lot of first-gen or first-gen-ish college students. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's it's, it's really the Cosby show. That's why I'm at NYU. <laughs> well, then the city or NYU seemed to hook you since yeah, you kept oh, coming back. Yeah, it's been like my absolute love. And it kept coming up in other ways. Like when I was a kid, I would watch the I Love Lucy show. And obviously, like Lucy and Ricky Ricardo living mm-hmm. here yeah. in the city and going to Macy's and things like that. And again, I was like... Well, I want to be like Lucille Ball. She seems like she's got she's got everything kind of going for her. So just the city, I mean, it's so much a character in, in media and things like that. Yeah. And it was one of those things I was like, this seems like something I want to try. I think it will be a challenge for somebody who is an introvert and from just like smaller towns and suburbs and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I love it. I moved in 2005 and I've been here ever since. Yeah, yeah. I'm really connecting to your story because when I was five. Uh-huh. My mom has a story that I told everybody that I was going to move to New York. And I have no idea why. I was from a small town in Kansas. Yeah. You know? Okay, yeah. And I moved here in 2004. So, oh, like, there very we go. similar. We're similar. Yeah. I'm following you around, I think. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Can you share with us how you came to be interested in your research areas and what are some of the, the benefits of the work that you do and the challenges that you yeah. experience? So, when I was a kid, so I was born in 1980, as I already disclosed, I'm 42. What was dominating the news cycle at the time was HIV AIDS mm-hmm. and also then things like Jeffrey Dahmer. So and my parents never, ever restricted access to the news, but would not let us watch things like The Simpsons or South Park or anything like that. MTV was absolutely forbidden. Mm-hmm. So, of course, every, <laughs> so of course, every time they snuck out, I would put on MTV and I'm of like, course. people seem to be just like being sexy. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> but what I really got interested in was people were dying because of misinformation and stigma and shame around being in love with people who society said that they shouldn't be or having sexual relationships with people who society was like, that's not okay. And I was like, Mm -hmm. well, that doesn't seem fair or right. Like I was raised kind of broadly Christian. I was like, well, doesn't the Bible say to like love everybody? And so it just, it didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense with the messages that my parents were giving me. And I was just like, well, this doesn't seem right. And of course, as like an eight-year-old watching this unfold, like 1988, 1989, you don't have the words for 
identities or intersectionality and things like that. But I was like, well, nobody should ever be afraid of of being able to be alive or, or getting health care mm-hmm. just because there's something about them that other people don't like and because they don't have information. And so that was one of the things that really was like, okay, this this doesn't seem right. I want to do something in the world to change that or to at least open up conversations around who we are and in our identities. And then on the other hand, in a very personal way, my mom was not somebody that my sister and I could talk to about sex. And my brothers, it was very different because they had the sex talk with my dad. But my sister and I being the oldest two in the family, me being the oldest of all of them, we would ask questions and she would just be like, no, that's not something that like good girls do. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, you know, like could we get on birth control, things like that. And we're like 14, 15. And if your 14 or 15-year-old is asking you for that, there is probably a reason. Mm-hmm. Either they're sexually active or they experience really bad cramping or – they just want to regulate their menstrual cycle or something. Mm-hmm. But she would always kind of shut us down, which led to just a lot of discomfort and a lot of scary things that sort of happened as a result. And then when we finally got on birth control, she was like, well, I had a really bad experience. So like, you're going to have really high blood pressure and you need to watch out because you'll have a heart attack. And I was like, I don't think that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. It's like these people that we should be able to talk to, we couldn't. And then sex was like stigmatized and shamed. So again, I got a lot of messages from the TV and radio about sexuality, like MTV. And I was like, okay, well, everyone seems to be out there being like a sexual being. I was like, okay, so this seems more like how I want my life to be. And then in 1990, 1991, that song, Let's Talk About Sex by mm-hmm. Salt and Pepper came mm-hmm. out. And that is absolutely foundational to my existence. Because I was like, well, here are three women, the, the two that rap and then Spinderella, who does the the beats for it actually talking about sex and talking about protecting themselves and enjoying sex. And I was like, yes. So fortunately, my ears were quicker than my mom's. So when the song would come on, I would turn it down just low enough where she wouldn't hear the song because if she heard it, she'd make me turn it off. Mm. But I could still hear it and listen to those messages. So that's where I was like, oh, it's it's okay to be talking about this because I was getting information from my friends who were equally as clueless. And they would tell me things like, well, if you have sex with boy A and then you have sex with boy B, you can't get pregnant because you have to have sex with the same person two times in a row. And it's like, wow. Yeah, it's like, that seems incorrect, <laughs> but I, don't, I have no information. Mm-hmm. So just for any listener out there who doesn't know, you don't have to have sex with the same person twice to get pregnant. Any, <laughs> any person, one encounter alone can get you pregnant. Um, but yeah, so it's just, it was things like that. And I was like, this shouldn't be a way other people have to grow up. There shouldn't be the stigma Mm. and the shame around something that's an innate part of the human experience if you're interested in sex. And if you're not, then it's still an innate part of who you are and your identities. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So a lot of just not wanting people to have the same experiences that I did. And this idea that research is very often me-search. So you're just trying to understand your Mm -hmm. own experiences in the world. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because there's some of the topics you're talking about, there's many ways that you could have gone about it. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a nurse and, mm-hmm. you know, you could have gone into the healthcare yeah. route. You could go into my high school. Yeah. You could go the counseling <laughs> route. Yeah. And so I'm curious what what it was about doing research and, and becoming a, a professor and some yeah. like kind of how that became um, your goal. Well, I always knew that med school is not for me because I am terrified of dead things, even though I think about death literally every day. But like blood and stuff like that is I'm very kind of squeamish around. And I was like, I, I don't think that I could do any kind of clinical thing. Well, Although it's dead people don't have blood. So I know, but it's like you have to take, take the blood. You have to practice on the dead people to get to the point to take the blood. But also yeah, I don't know yeah. that. I don't really know how a cell functions. So that's also another <laughs> pretty big barrier to entry for med school for me. <laughs> 
And so I actually started out in the realm of international affairs and political science because I was interested in women's political participation. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, why aren't fem-bodied people or people with a vulva represented in political structures? And I was like, ah, well, it's things like access to childcare and access to birth control and things like that. So then from like a human development perspective, I took a step back and I was like, okay, well, how do we get these tools of bodily autonomy to people? And that's where I became more interested in the health side of things. And obviously like HIV AIDS too, Mm -hmm. like if people are, are sick and are dying, they obviously cannot participate in the political processes because they have things that are more fundamentally important. And I was like, ah, health kind of is the fundamental thing that all people need to be happy, obviously to be healthy, and then to participate and advocate for the way they want the world to change and to move forward. Mm. So it became kind of one of those fundamental causes. And then I was like, yeah, you've always been interested in sex and health Mm -hmm. and things like that. So why not just focus on that. Because again, I had no idea because when I was growing up, everyone was like, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I was like, oh, well, those must be the only things that people Mm -hmm. can do Mm -hmm. or like a teacher or something like that. So I thought I was going to have a career in law (laughs) or be a career kind of bureaucrat at various governmental organizations. Ideally, like the UN would have been Hmm. my sort of pinnacle. And it just happened really slowly over time. Where I kept being like, okay, but I want – these are the types of jobs that I want. And they wanted somebody with 10 years of experience or a PhD. And I was just like, well, I'm at six years of experience. If I get a PhD and keep working, I could have both. And then they can't tell me no. Mm. And I'm just somebody who is unendingly curious. And I was very, very, very fortunate that my father instilled this belief in us that we could do whatever we wanted and that curiosity and education were the single highest pursuits that a human could have. Just mm. learn, like being curious and just learning all that you could. And so when I told my family, I was like, yeah, so I'm, I applied for a PhD program and I got in. So I, I think I'm going to do that. Everyone looked at me and was like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> like, how did you not know that? And I was like, oh, well, I wish you- long enough. Yeah. I was like, well, I wish you had told me because I've been struggling with this decision. And I definitely, I started my PhD at 34, 33. So a little bit older than a lot of people usually do. And I was like, oh, well, uh, you could have saved me a lot of agony if, if all of you had just been like, yeah, we knew you were going to do this. Why didn't you do this? So yeah, just kind of, I sort of fell into it. And mm. I love teaching more than anything. I really love connecting with students and young people in the classroom and getting them passionate about the things that I'm passionate about. Because one day I want to retire. I'm <laughs> I'm going to be older and more tired. So and I want to take after. Yeah, I yeah. want people to, I want to know carry that there are the people work. out there that are trained that can carry on the work. I mean, hopefully we won't have to. I, I would love to put myself out of business. I say that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> put yourself out of a job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that would be amazing. Yeah. And, and mentoring. I really love mentoring students mm-hmm. too. And just like helping people kind of figure out their path. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm particularly interested in the work that you're doing around messaging in the media and the impact that it has on like identity and behavior. Yeah. I feel like April and I discuss oppressive ideologies that come from various different places all of the time mm-hmm. in this podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I really am, am thinking about, you know, some of the research on female sexuality and music mm-hmm. and, you know, what impact that it has on people and how they behave. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of that research. Yeah, absolutely. So I do a lot of this research with um, a fellow NYU grad, uh, Adele Fournay. She has her PhD in ethnomusicology from NYU. So she knows like the music theory stuff. And then I can talk about the health messaging. So we have two different research studies. One looks at condom messages and rap music. And we only look at rap music because generally speaking, pop music doesn't really talk about 
sex, or at least not in the same way. And the idea also that rap music is usually written by the artists themselves. So it serves more as like a like an interview, like if you were mm. to sit down in a qualitative kind of way and like talk to us about your life experiences. Mm-hmm. So it tends to be written by the artist. So you have a very different kind of look at things. And so we found with the condom messaging that a lot of it was very mixed. Like sometimes the artists were talking about using condoms usually to protect yourself from, I won't use the words that they use because I don't know how friendly the podcast is to foul language. Oh, okay. You know, like protecting yourselves from like bitches and hoes because they just want to get pregnant and take your money. Mm -hmm. Um, And then other times being like, yeah, you should use a condom. It's a responsible thing. Like you don't want kids, things like that. So even when there are messages about using condoms, they're still sometimes very misogynistic. Mm -hmm. And then there's a ton of messaging around just not using a condom. Like old dirty bastard saying that he likes it raw or Eminem. The name of the paper is called Fuck Bitches Raw on the Kitchen Floor, which is an Eminem lyric. So looking at the messages that way, because the idea that music is the soundtrack of our lives, even if we don't like rap music, if we're in like a drugstore or the supermarket, like you, you can't escape it. And then mm. we're getting these messages and this idea of like norm forming, like broad socialization theory from J.J. Arendt that what you hear And especially if you're hearing these things, getting these messages from media and music and things like that, especially in the absence of your parents or Mm -hmm. religious figures or education settings, teachers, professors providing real information about this, you will seek out information wherever you can seek it out. Mm -hmm. Very much my own story when I was talking about salt and pepper. And that's how we form our norms. And so some of the newer work that we have, we're looking at female artists only because rap tends to be a very male-driven genre. There's Mm -hmm. just more male artists that are represented. The new line of research that we have looks at uh, messages around sexuality among female artists looking at rap music and pop music because pop music will sort of allude to sex in that very kind of like metaphorical way, like Jessica Simpson talking about like, oh, one day when I'm married, I can't wait for us to have sex. (laughs) Or like Britney Spears, like, oops, I did it again. Or like Kesha talking about being dressed. So it's very much like, whoops, I was drunk and I I became a sexual being for just a minute. But like, I'm really, I'm a virgin, I promise. Mm -hmm. With the notable exception of like Alanis Morissette and Madonna and things like that. And pop tends to be driven by, or white women are allowed, allowed, that's air quotes, Mm -hmm. in pop music. Whereas black women or women of color tend to be forced into like a hip-hop, R&B, rap genre. But we found that the messages in hip-hop, rap, R&B tend to be more explicit and focused around pleasure around Mm. and like exploring sexuality and being like, no, I am a sexual being. But interestingly, with the female artists, as compared to the paper, with the rap and condom newspaper, female artists, regardless of genre, tend to be their music tends to be written by writing teams that include men. So even when we have a song like Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion, uh, when we have WAP, where they're talking about their wet-ass pussies, Megan Thee Stallion is credited as a writer, but Cardi B is not. And the rest of the writing team is all male. So there is still mm-hmm. a lot of male gaze that's happening, mm-hmm. which then can tie into things like the Jezebel stereotype, which is definitely a racist trope that black women and women of color are just like these wanton sexual beings as a way to kind of like excuse the rape that would happen in plantations or in slave owner settings. So even then, like it's still, it's problematic. So it's like, you know, what comes first? What, what of these messages are learned? I would still say that people talking about their sexuality and promoting their own, like, I am a sexual being. I enjoy sex. Here's what I like is better than this idea of like, oh, I'm a pure little virgin until we get married. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's interesting and it's not as clear cut as we thought it would be. And it, it ties into all of these these norms and stereotypes and, and 
and gender norms Mm -hmm. that are just really, really complex to pull apart. But these are messages that people are being given and have been given. The other thing I want to say is, and have been given since like the mid 60s with the Shirelles talking about like, will he still love me in the morning? Mm -hmm. So it's not like this is new. So whenever, for everyone out there that's listening, whenever you hear somebody be like, oh, music today is is getting so sexualized Mm -hmm. and like, look at WAP. Like, no, it's been existing since 1965. Mm -hmm. Like the Beatles sing about really problematic things in music. And like intermittent partner violence and stuff like that. So like it, it's been happening. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of the Christmas song. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, my yeah. What is that song? I can't think of it. It's maybe it's cold outside. Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Where it's like super creepy. And, yeah. yeah. I was mad. like when I started listening listening to it, I was like, oh man, this is one of my favorite ones when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh. But I think we don't realize just how these things impact us. You were talking mm-hmm. about how, you know, oh, if we don't have other people to go to, like, you know, family or religious affiliation or and those can also be harmful, too. So yeah. if you're not getting, like, realistic, good, factual, and comprehensive to yeah. say, like, it's not just, you know, white cisgendered, it's, like, more friendly to people who mm-hmm. are in different communities and who identify in different ways, who have different orientations, yeah. you're getting all these messages that, like, what you're identifying as or who you are isn't acceptable. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's also really interesting because as we were doing this, Adele and I had to read all of the lyrics and it's really different reading Hmm. what people Hmm. are saying versus just hearing it. Like there's a DMX song where he talks about like fucking somebody's corpse and we're just like, oh my God. And it's like Adele. I was like, I I have to take a break for a week. Like this is really starting to affect my mental health. Hmm. And so it's, it's part of the way the brains work. When we're listening to a song or something like that, it's just a snippet of a story. It's like maybe a beginning and a middle, but you never hear about the fallout that happens afterwards. Mm -hmm. It's written from one person's perspective. And our brains, when we're taking in information that's just audio, it takes longer to process and isn't stored in like those long-term memory parts of the brain. It's like more in the short term. But if it's something that's visual, so like if you're watching a music video or something like that, it is encoded in that like long-term memory. And there's no ambiguity about the message because you are being shown it and you can just Mm -hmm. take in something like 60,000 bits of information. So just much more information, much more quickly when Mm -hmm. it's a visual message as opposed to an audio message. So it's just fascinating the way brains work. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting to think, I'd be curious about the research that you've done on the music, if you did it with music videos too, and just the images that that are chosen to be portrayed and and images of female identifying folks that are often used in music videos and the objectification. Yeah. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because there are, I think the most sex-positive song out there is a song from 2017 uh, by J. Cole called Wet Dreams. And he's talking about being anxious about using a condom for the first time with a new partner and, like, practicing putting it on. I'm like, yes. And the female Mm -hmm. partner has agency because she's like, you know, baby, I know you're a pro, but, you know, please be gentle. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And, like, my students turned me on to the song before because I hadn't – we would – code the rap lyrics in order from a uh, timeline. So starting mm. in 1991 and then getting up to 2017. So they're like, oh, just wait. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and they were telling me about the music video. I was like, this is going to be incredible. We're going to see images. And the music video is puppies, <laughs> like really little puppies, like kind of rolling around. So like the the image and the, the lyrics will often be incongruous. And I was yeah. like, oh, this would have been such a great opportunity. But it's it's a wonderful song. Um, I tweeted at both Eminem and J. Cole when the paper came out. They both ignored me. <laughs> like, oh, guys, you're supposed to make me famous. Yeah. But they didn't. <laughs> have you heard of the artist uh, Rachel Lark? No. 
I really love some of her work because mm-hmm. I think that there's some good sex education ah, okay. in there. And, you know, she's more of a, I don't know, folky kind of a... I love folk But she's, music. like, also funny because she talks mm-hmm. about, like, having, you know, a cyst and having to go, <laughs> go to the emergency room. Amazing. But then having, like, you know, too large of a penis having caused an appendicitis. <laughs> I'm going to very quickly make a note. So, so I think I that, like, you don't often, like, when I found her, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is, like, engaging. I really remember the lyrics and it's so refreshing to have mm-hmm. someone be honest with yeah. sexuality and sex. Yeah. And she has like a p- song about periods. Like, yeah. Like, she, is she the one that has the song about how they sent Sally Ride to space with 72 tampons? No. no that's, no. oh, Michelle something. And I cannot remember her mm. last name because I use her lyric all the time. So yeah. I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, where the space and rocket industry is. So they talk about sending Sally Ride up into space with 100 tampons. 100 tampons, yeah. And they're like, and the lyric is, but and then they wondered, will that be enough? And yeah. I was like, who would use a hundred tampons <laughs> in an average menstrual cycle? Yeah, this for for listeners, she was Sally Ride was in space for seven days. Yeah. And we don't even know if she was on her period, but they just tried to they tried to prepare, but it was yeah. men. Men yeah. tried to prepare. Yeah. And as the, the song points out, they're literally rocket scientists. <laughs> and they couldn't, I don't know, Google menstruation or, or, or talk, to ask ask talk to ask someone yeah. with a vagina. Any, yeah. Anyone who might menstruate. Yeah, so it's always like, <laughs> that song cracks me up. Uh, yeah. Now I'm going to have to find the Yeah, Yeah. Absolutely. Also, just for the listeners out there, if you are using 100 tampons in your, like, a period, that is excessive bleeding, and you should absolutely talk to somebody because we don't talk about what heavy menstrual flow is, and so many people are just like, well, it's natural for me to have to change my tampon or my pad every hour or every two hours. That is outside the realm of normal, so you should absolutely talk to your physician about that. This also, we're, we're kind of going down a, a menstruation rabbit hole, but did you all see recently that they used to test the absorbency of tampons with water and just very recently released the very first research paper about testing it with actual blood? Can I brag really quickly? Yeah. The senior author on that, Bethany Samuelson-Banow, is the other half of Dr. Period Hackers. Oh. So she's like a close personal friend. So we've been tweeting all day about it. And she's like, the mm-hmm. Vagina Museum in London reposted. I was like, I, you know what? I've got you. I'm going to blow this up. We're going to be famous. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, Bethany, I was like, you must be. She, I was like, you must be kidding. And she's like, no, because I do a lot of research on why they use blue liquid, which of mm. course is because it looks clean and like Windex and all of these yeah. things. So like we didn't start seeing the color red and menstrual adverts to like 2011 and even then it was a drawn poster and there's a UK company in 2019 that finally started using actual blood that you could see so yeah anyway it's mm-hmm. a fascinating yeah. study everyone should read it and yeah. you should follow at Dr. Period Hackers on we're on Twitter and we're trying to move to Instagram as well yeah, yeah. well since we're talking about menstruation <laughs> there's so many negative norms and messages uh, yeah around menstruating that in I think impact both people who menstruate and people who don't, mm-hmm. right? Like whether yeah. or not to have sex on, on you know, w- while you're menstruating, whether that's like gross or whatever, you know, I think like those negative messages are out there. Mm-hmm. But also just to say that like, you know, there are a lot of things that are not correct and correct. Oh, so and so, many things that are not um, correct. I know that you have like some research around this area and you have Dr. Period Hacker. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about your research, but also what is, you know, the Dr. Period Hacker yeah. perspective? Uh, so Dr. Period Hackers started just almost exactly two years ago today. Um, and a friend of mine from high school, Stephen Anfield, knows somehow or followed or saw something that Bethany posted about period poverty. And he was like, Mary Beck, hey, we haven't talked for a minute. We're like high school friends. He's like, you should connect with this person. So Stephen knows me, doesn't really know Bethany. Bethany and I don't know each other. And we just like have a Zoom meeting. And she's like, I'm really interested in periods. And I was like, me too. Hmm. It's like, 
and period poverty. I was like, yep, and myths and stereotypes. She's like, uh-huh. And so she was like, how about we do something where we like tweet out information like once a week? I was like, let's call it Menstrual Monday. We'll tweet on Mondays. We now have also a fun fact Friday. And that was it. It was just two people who connected through the magic of being strangers on the internet through one person who <laughs> sort of knew us both. <laughs> and that's that. And so we have a team of research interns from Rutgers, from NYU, from the Oregon Health and Science University, mm-hmm. where Bethany is out on the West Coast, that work with us. So a bunch of young people that help us come up with the content, help us think about these things. We have a survey that's out and active now. I'm happy to share the link with anyone who wants to take it. It's open to anyone who has ever menstruated, who's between the ages of 18 and 45. And we'll then have a bunch of research coming out from that. So it's it's both like education and kind of pop culture stuff. And we do talks on that research. And then we're hoping in the future to start a nonprofit around it so we can raise our own money to do research outside of the universities and outside of getting like NIH funding because and the NIH does not care about periods. Mm-hmm. Come at me, NIH. Prove me wrong. <laughs> give me money. <laughs> and then being able to collect money to make donations and have it like period pantries and things mm-hmm. like that. And just have kind of connected with like a lot of people around the world. In in the U.S. too, that are just really passionate about this because it's not something we're really talking about that Mm -hmm. much, which has then led to – I'm on the board of the the Journal of Women's Health, so we're doing a special collection around that that should come out probably beginning of next year just around menstrual research and things like that. We look at a lot of different things. So Bethany is an MD, so she's a physician, so she looks at it from – like clotting perspectives. And she does a lot of work with people in the bleeding disorders community. So people who have von Willenbrand disease or hemophilia, because we don't often talk about their menstrual experiences. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about trans research uh, and menstruation because there's not a lot of information about the effects of testosterone on menstruation for people who are non-binary or who are trans identified. And that the, the experience of menstruation can be really a dysphoric for mm-hmm. a lot of people. So mm-hmm. how to make menstruation gender affirming or as gender affirming as it can be. And then I am particularly interested in the words we use around mm-hmm. menstruation and how we talk about it and how we see it represented in the media, especially kind of in the horror genre. Because if anyone has ever seen the film Carrie, like the beginning of the film opens with her getting her, her so her mother doesn't talk to her about menstruation, kind of very much my own experience. And she has, she gets her first period in the shower in gym class mm-hmm. and has no idea what's happening to her and is like freaked out, obviously, because all of a sudden right. like blood is coming out of your body. Um, and that also then happens to be the onset of her like telekinetic powers. So we see menstruation a lot in horror genres with this like, onset of like uncontrollable nature and this idea that like menstrual blood makes people who can menstruate so people with vulvas like out of control and Mm -hmm. and this idea of like hysteria and this like otherness so like a lot about the abject so if you're interested in that especially like uh kind of feminine stuff in horror films there's a really great book called the monstrous feminine where barbara creed talks a lot about things like this and like the abject and this idea that menstrual blood is both a sign of nurturing because it's the thing that signifies to the world that we are then re- people with vulvas, we, because I'm a person with a vulva, that we are reproductively capable, but also is something that is abject that makes people like, ooh, gross and want to stay away from us. So it's this like duality mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. femme-bodied people, people with vulvas have to inhabit and how impossibly narrow the foothold of that line of what is okay is. Yeah. 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 Can I rewind and ask you to yeah, define oh gosh, um, what period poverty is? Yeah. So period poverty is just people's inability to afford menstrual products or anything to help with menstruation. So it can be like not being able to afford pads or tampons 
or uh, things like that. It can also just be financial hardship around having to prioritize money for those products over other things. And it plays out really differently in Western wealthy countries like the United States versus countries in Africa or Latin America and places like that where people uh, either don't have access to menstrual products at all. So they're using like old rags and things like that that might not be cleaned properly, which can lead to infection and missed days of school if you don't have any kind of collection method mm-hmm. available to you. So it plays out really differently. But what we do see is that it usually impacts the educational opportunities and economic opportunities mm-hmm. down the line of people who are fem-bodied or who have a vulva who can menstruate. And then what we're talking about in a Western context because – Menstrual products are taxed in, oh goodness, it's changing every day, but it's it's upward, I think it's like 35, 37 states in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then given the fact that people with vulvas make less money overall, it becomes a bigger proportion of our paycheck. So there is a move then to eliminate the period tax as a way to help eliminate some of the financial burden of menstruation since it's a biological imperative. It's something that bodies just do. For any listeners out there that don't know, because I see this a lot on Twitter, there's this kind of myth that they're like, oh, well, if, you know, if women can hold their pee, why can't they hold their menstruation? And you're just like, oh, gosh. Wow, that's really... Also, it's two different holes, okay. if you it's, didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th- and this was from a, Yeah, and this was a tweet from a politician. So this is somebody oh. who is in power, who is making laws about bodies that menstruate. So yeah, two different holes, two different functions. You cannot <laughs> stop the bleeding. It The blood just comes when the blood comes. When you do not want it to come. It yes. When you're wearing white shorts, yeah, when you're walking down the street, cool. minding your own business, and it's just a gush. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, I stood up. There there it is again. Yeah. So it's it's not something that menstruators can control. Believe me, if we could hold it and just, you know, do it in the toilet, we absolutely would. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's things like that. And I'm always, I'm a big proponent of what I would love to get started is uh, free bleed February where everyone who menstruates just free bleeds, meaning they don't use a pad, tampon, period, underwear, menstrual cup. And we're just like, here's my blood, deal with it. Because I guarantee you, we do that for a week maybe the entire month of February, and all of a sudden we would see laws change because people are like, oh, but they're going to menstruate on the subway. Yes, we are, and there's mm. going to be a stain. Oh, but I don't want to – yeah, that is exactly right. Give us Can products we do for that free. for, like, everything we want to advocate for? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Not just, period? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm a low-key anarchist, so let's do it. <laughs> I like the free bleed February. We'll have, yeah, to, think of, we'll have to think of the alliterative <laughs> titles for all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm super shocked at what you just revealed as one of the things that people have actually said. I'm curious, like, are there other myths that you think are important to bust here or if that's helpful? Because I feel like, I mean, I'm shocked, but yeah. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Mm. Oh, there was a recent study that came out that I think it's like from 2021 that said that 70% of high school seniors say they know more about frog biology than the human female anatomy. Mm. And I was like instantly bummed out by that. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think it's important to know that menstrual blood is it's safe. It's sanitary. You absolutely can have sex while you are menstruating. There are actually a lot of health benefits to it. Uh, one, you don't need lube because it's naturally lubricating. It can actually help reduce headaches and menstrual cramps. It can also shorten your menstrual cycle. So I'm somebody who has absolutely done that and gotten my 
menstrual cycle down to like a day and a half of active bleeding. Wow. So yeah, that maybe is an overshare. I also only typically bleed like three days. I have like jealous. an inappropriate share. Yeah. Um, there was like, someone told me like years ago, there's like this really awful um, thing to like say or, or do, or I don't know, do. Uh, it's a saying. It's mm-hmm. like, if you can walk through mud, you can fuck through blood. Amazing. <laughs> oh my God. I'm absolutely going to remember that. That's a I great know. one. Let me think of some other. So as a doula and a sexologist, something. So I've thought about menstruation and periods and sex my entire life, but something I didn't know until about two years ago. So there are two phases of the menstrual cycle that I knew. There's the follicular phase, which is everything leading up to the uh, to ovulation, so the release of the egg. So that is the part of the menstrual cycle that is unstable, meaning that it can take a different amount of time every month, and that your body will wait to release the egg to ovulate. Uh, until it is optimal for you to become pregnant, because that is your body's imperative. That is what, mm-hmm. so, like, to quote Jurassic Park, life wants to find a way. Life will find a way. <laughs> so it's waiting for those op- optimal conditions. So when you've drank enough water, when you've slept enough, when you've uh, taken in the right nutrients and things like that to release that egg. So when your period is late, it's not actually your period that's late. It's your ovulation that has occurred mm-hmm. late. Mm-hmm. You were only pregnant for 24 hours out of your entire menstrual cycle. That is from when that when ovulation happens and then the egg dies within 24 hours. So we spend billions of dollars on birth control to regulate the fertility of people with vulvas and they're only fertile for 24 hours, 12 to 13 times a year. We don't spend a lot of money trying to come up with birth control for people with a penis when they are literally fertile <laughs> 365 days a year. So misogyny and science, it's the Mm -hmm. best. Mm -hmm. Sexism and science. So that second half of your menstrual cycle, the luteal phase, is when your body is then preparing to shed the uterine lining. And that's the time when you want to like stay inside. You want to like Netflix, but maybe not chill, or at least not with (laughs) another human. Um, And that part is always the same amount of time every day. For most people, it's about 14 days. Mm -hmm. So when your cycle is longer, it's that first half, that follicular phase. So knowing when you ovulate is a really important thing because it can help you prevent pregnancy and things like that. And if you really know your body and you're doing basal body temperature and you're tracking all of your symptoms, you can prevent pregnancy that way if you don't want to use any kind of birth control method. I think, you know, in the reproductive justice movement, knowing all of the different options for birth control is really important. Some people mm-hmm. don't want to use hormones. That is yeah. a perfectly valid choice. If it's yeah. not right for you, like if whatever it is, if it's not right for you, then it's not the method that's going to work for you. Right. Yeah. We did a birth control yeah, episode. Our episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the things we said in there was like, choose the method that you will actually yeah. use. And yeah, exactly. that's different for yeah. everybody. Yeah. I do want to say that sperm can live in the... In the yeah vagina for up to five days. So, you know, even if you know when you're going to ovulate, keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want any sperm in your body for like three to five days before, I would say maybe five, even seven days before, just because you don't know. And again, because your body is waiting for those optimal conditions, that's why you have to kind of track it. So, Mm -hmm. and while we're on it, since the United States is particularly hostile to people with vulvas, Tracking your period is really, really important because there is only normal to you. So when you go to the doctor, Mm -hmm. if you are experiencing odd Mm -hmm. signs and symptoms for you, one of the best things you can do is take in your period tracking device. Uh, If you use the tracker on uh, iPhones, it is safe because of the uh, Apple data protection policy. I really like Clue because it's not pink and it's also based in Germany. (laughs) So they are based, uh, so they're under European data protection laws, so they can never get your information. But any company that's based in the U.S., depending on how legislation goes, it could be that they will turn that information over to the government. So track your period and 
just kind of think about what tracker you're using and don't delete your data. Download it first and then delete your app. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really helpful. Yeah, yeah. Thing. So many people I read, they're like, I deleted my app. And I was like, no, that's all of your menstrual data. If there's something going wrong, you won't know what normal is for you because you've deleted all of the data. Well, that's why normal. I think I hadn't switched or done mm-hmm. anything yeah. different. I was like, oh, that's all of my da-. And, you know, I'm on the older end of uh, the spectrum of mm-hmm. period. And so it's like, I'm really needing to keep track of it for mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah. it's, it's very weird when you get to be in your 40s at times. <laughs> and so it's like, oh wow, I don't want to lose all of that data. Yeah. So I think that's mm-hmm. really helpful to sort of think about. Yeah. As somebody yeah. who's, this might be an overshare, but as somebody who's on that end of things, I've been thinking now about like, oh yeah, I spent my entire life thinking, oh, my stupid period. Whoa. And I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't going to happen forever. And I'm like, how do I document the experience? Mm-hmm. So like thinking about like pictures that I could take and like just mm-hmm. making mm-hmm. sure like when I am menstruating to like fully embody that experience because it's not going to happen. It won't happen forever. Yeah. Yeah. I know period art is a thing. Yeah, I'm sort of, I'm sort of like tiptoeing into that. I'm like, let me yeah, just yeah. take some pictures of my menstruation yeah. for a minute. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will say as somebody who is now pregnant that my I was using the Fitbit app to mm-hmm. track my period. There's no option to tell your period tracker. I mean, maybe oh others are, but there's no uh-huh. way to tell this period tracker that I'm pregnant. Yeah. So it's like thinking, your period's late, your period's late. Like I literally just had to turn the data collection off because <laughs> yeah. there was no way to be like, no, that period is not coming. Yeah. Nope, the next one's not coming either. <laughs> so for a little plug for Clue, and I think also the Apple app, you can tell it that you're pregnant. Mm. So Because I didn't want it to mess up my data. Right? Exactly. I didn't want yeah. it to like screw up five years of data that I had collected. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to share with us about your research that we haven't covered yet? We're writing a little bit of a preview for the the Slasher book. So I'm working mm-hmm. with a researcher, Eleanor Reynolds. She is uh, based in Australia. And so she looks at women in science and has a particular fascination around slasher films and the idea of like femininity and the, the idea of the final girl is like the girl who survives and the mm-hmm. one who isn't very prototypically feminine. She tends to be a virgin, tends to be really bookish and smart and things like that. So this idea that the less feminine you are, you get to survive. Mm. Whereas like the super femme people in slasher films or people that have expressed their femininity don't get to survive. So we're looking at things Mm. like that and how those archetypes play on this idea of like nurturing. And it's weird that my life has taken a turn for the blood. As I said at the beginning of this, I was like, I couldn't be a physician because yeah. I'm scared of blood. But now I think about it's it all, all the time. Blood. I know, yeah. but only like in a very distant kind of way, not in the like. Are you going to do some blood art? Like, I'm, I'm yeah, like I mean, I'm, I'm like, maybe you could go back to medical school. Medical school. Maybe. <laughs> I'm, I'm now student loan debt free, so I'm never going back to school again. I get like that. kind of tiptoeing into to menstrual art. But I think it's really the dead bodies that freak me out. <laughs> like mummies. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for part one of our interview with Dr. Mary Beck Griffin. Join us for part two, where we get personal. We talk about how Dr. Griffin learned about sex and communication growing up in the South, as well as her journey with her body, being fetishized, and harm that has occurred in the dating world. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at nyu.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours and may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback, as we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at nyu.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. 
Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at nyu.edu. For anyone, NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or the National Mental Health Hotline, simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S., Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Viney Emisa, Zoe Ragusios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellum, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman. 